Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And every fortnight we amplify, chat about, chew over the latest medical news. And um, if you feel suitably inspired by what we're saying, pay us a visit at wddty.com where you can read more. And you can also uh, find out about our wonderful magazine that we publish every month in the UK and the US. And you can subscribe to it and we'll pop a copy in the post to you every month. And talking of which, Lynn, um, there's no such thing as a safe medical scan. And... Um, Nonetheless, I think people have far too many of them. Now, what's considered the safest of all scans is the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned the magazine a moment ago because in the next issue, the September one, I've done a, quite a bit of research on ultrasound and a lot of interesting facts have come out of that research. Um, ultrasound, as you know, uses um, uh, sound waves to, to build an image and it's usually used for... Uh, uh, mums-to-be to see their growing babe in the womb. And, of course, they all like them because it's like a happy snaps pick of the babe. And uh, doctors have a more serious reason to do an ultrasound, but nonetheless, it really is the happy snaps uh, scan. But um, interestingly, when the ultrasound uh, scan was introduced as a standard screening program in the UK in about 1976... It had never been tested on humans. And by the time people said, well, look, shouldn't we be testing? It was too late. People said, well, it's not ethically safe any longer to do so. So it was never properly tested. But a researcher discovered, and I talk about this in the, in the article, a researcher discovered a whole catch of uh, papers from China, and where, of course, they have the one family, one baby uh, policy. And um, that, sadly, also means a lot of fetuses are aborted. And uh, one scientist did a test of these fetuses, which had uh, received ultrasound whilst they were growing, and discovered all sorts of neurological problems and damages. And at the least, he felt that they could, had the baby gone to term, could result in problems like ADHD, learning difficulties and then the rest, but at the extreme end could even cause leukaemia. But, of course, no one can be sure if that is the case. But even so, they even that with ultrasound, good old safe ultrasound, lots of question marks. But let's get up to date because really what this is about is about CT, computed tomography, which is uses very high-level doses of radiation to build a picture of, uh, of a person, always considered to be safe. I'm not quite sure why they do consider it a safe screening method, but they do. But um, they've done some studies into it and found that even just having free scans makes our cells cancer-ready. Um, they thought that, uh, well, it's not dangerous because it doesn't damage DNA, but it does damage healthy cells and makes them cancer-capable, as the scientists call it, which means it increases the chances of cancer actually happening. And they say that having just three CT scans is enough to escalate the problem and make, make those cells cancer-ready. And it's all to do with mutations in cells known as the P53 mutations. And um, 
Just three scans started the spread of these P53 cells until they overwhelmed the healthy cells. So what can you do about it? Well, obviously not have a CT scan if you can avoid it, but if you are going to have a scan, the researchers say, take an antioxidant beforehand because that seems to block the damage caused by the scans. And in, in this particular case, the researchers used NAC as an antioxidant to give to the um, volunteers beforehand. They did find the healthy cells remained intact afterwards after having had the scans and i was saying a moment ago about you know we have too many scans anyway and staying on the subject of ct another study came out and found that even pregnant women are having four times the number of ct scans than they were 20 years ago which is of course also exposing the growing fetus to very high levels of radiation and um it's an astonishing increase in just a few short years. And, you know, and they, the researchers aren't entirely sure why this should be, other than the fact that it's gee whiz technology. Doctors like to do it and show off and show what it can do. But really, um, as they're saying, if you're pregnant, you really should be questioning your doctor about this and say, do I really need to have this scan? Because, you know, the levels of radiation are so high that, um, you know, this can't be good for me or my baby. And it, it could reach its far higher levels of radiation than, than a standard X-ray would. Um, again, no one knows what damage this is causing or could cause. And uh, in the same way they didn't really with ultrasound, but it, it can't be doing anybody any good. Well, this is an outrage. There is a creeping um, uh, tendency by the medical profession to ignore its own past practice of realizing that pregnancy is a time where you don't subject the woman to drugs and you don't subject the woman to procedures. Um, that was essentially the mantra that was um, adopted after the thalidomide disaster when they gave pregnant women a, a drug supposedly to prevent, I believe it was morning sickness, which caused all kinds of deformities. And they got really shocked, the medical profession, and said, we really have to watch what we give women during pregnancy. Well, that isn't happening so much anymore. Ultrasound, as you say, has been universally adopted. Women go through countless scans just for curiosity, Maybe the medical profession is looking for things, but there are so many routine scans during pregnancy now. No one's asking the basic question. Now, back when What Doctors Don't Tell You first started, our first year in 1990, we wrote a story about the dangers of ultrasound and that they found that in a pregnant woman, ultrasound causes cavitation or heating up and bubbling in the amniotic fluid, and that that can potentially be dangerous to the growing brain and body of a baby. And they've certainly found, I mean, in those early studies, those that they were able to do, um, that there were subtle brain damages, like a surfeit of left-handedness um, among babies exposed to ultrasound. Now it's hard to do these kinds of studies because just about every child is exposed to ultrasound mm. in the womb. Um, and I say this not considering left-handedness a uh, you know brain damage because I happen to be left-handed. 
but that well, maybe it is. Who knows? I wasn't uh, going to say a word. <laughs> <clears throat> but that should be questioned. These routine scans, if they don't suspect anything is wrong, really pull back on these. Um, curio the curiosity factor isn't worth it. But the other thing that's even more outrageous is the idea that they are exposing women to high, high dose CAT scans, you know, high, high dose radiation when it was, um, it was adopted, the policy was adopted to stop routinely x-raying women, which they used to do around the 50s and 60s. They used to x-ray their pelvises to make sure they were big enough to give birth to the baby. Mm. Well, they stopped doing that, realizing that x-rays cause damage. And now to take um, a scan with equipment that is hundreds of times more powerful, if not thousands of times more powerful than a typical you know, standard x-ray, is insanity, mm. is insanity. And as I say, it's of a piece with now the tendency to vaccinate women who are pregnant to give them all kinds of drugs, including antidepressants when they're pregnant. Um, doctors are suffering from a kind of amnesia on what happened before, and they mm. need to remember those problems of the past and stop doing this. Mm. And do you remember we used to get this annual book, it's called the PDR, Physician's Death Reference. It's a giant book, wasn't it? And it, it included every single prescription drug and every known side effect, adverse reaction. And um, almost every single drug, and there were thousands listed, every single drug said, warning, do not give to a pregnant woman. And, you know, recently we've also seen that throughout the uh, Euro, throughout Europe, the European uh, countries, that um, they've also stopped putting amalgam fillings into pregnant women, because, of course, they're 50% mercury. And yet, here we have these scans, and not only... Dangerous scans, but they're increasing the number of scans. So I think it's a really interesting point you make there, Lynn. There seems to be this delineation of safety between drugs and scans. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, and they've forgotten what they learned about thalidomide, too, mm. because they're giving drugs to pregnant women, too. Mm. So if you are pregnant out there, question everything. Yeah. Thanks very much, Lynn. For the longest time now, we've been doing research about vitamin D and especially how it impacts on diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Um, and um, there seemed to be you know, a, quite a, um, a clear correlation between low levels of vitamin D and the likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes. But um, researchers have gone a step further in some new research just come out, which says that extremely high doses of the, of the supplement, mega doses of the supplement, in fact, actually reversing diabetes. What they're doing, the, the, the supplement is actually uh, restoring the body's ability to process glucose or blood sugar. And of course, we know that diabetes is a disease of, um, of an inability to process glucose. Uh, the release of insulin is not breaking down the, the, the sugars, and uh, as, a re as a result, um, they become insulin resistant, and diabetes is the result. And, um, you know, lifestyle has always been considered to be the way to 
treat it as best as possible and then eventually to drugs. But here we are. Actually, the supplement vitamin D itself is reversing the process and people are starting to process, even diabetics are starting to process sugar properly. And um, this uh, turnaround, which is quite extraordinary really, was happening within six months. And um, so they, they stopped being diabetic and became, I suppose, either pre-diabetic or non-diabetic. I'm not quite sure which it was. But the only catch to this was that they were extremely high doses. And of course, the sort of standard dose that we're always told to take is always tiny, tiny. It's, the, it's usually the mi most minimal amount, whatever vitamin you're talking about, it's the most minimal amount to prevent disease. But to for therapeutic uh, purposes, doses have to be much, much higher. And in this particular case, the dose was 10 times the amount of the recommended daily allowance of the RDA. But uh, it's astonishing, I think, that nonetheless... This actually reversed diabetes. Well, uh, it doesn't surprise me because vitamin D is kind of a wonder hormone. It's not really a vitamin. It's a hormone. And it has been involved in um, something really central in so many areas. I mean, for instance, vitamin D is essential in helping to metabolize um, uh, things like magnesium, mm. and to keep your bones strong. Um, and so many of these supplements work in harmony together, but D is oftentimes one of the linchpins. So I find it really interesting also that they call this a mega dose. We're talking about mm. probably, what, 4,000 IUs? Yeah. Yeah, um, the usual recommended dose is no more than 400 IUs, mm. which is, as you say, the minimum amount to prevent some sort of disease, like the minimum amount of vitamin C you need to prevent scurvy. Mm. But that isn't therapeutic. We know when people are <laughs> ill, their nutritional needs skyrocket, and they need much, much larger doses. So... 4,000 IUs is probably more like what we all need to take mm. and not just a mega dose. Uh, interesting you say that. I was doing some research this week, Lynn, and um, fascinatingly, because the, the major source of vitamin D is called sun, sunlight. And um, I did this research and found that people who are out in the sun long enough that their skin became pink. We're not talking about burning or causing skin cancer, but just enough to get pink were getting a 20,000 IU dose of vitamin D just for being out in the sun long enough to, to pinken the, the skin. Isn't that mm. interesting? So you're, here, you're talking here about reversing diabetes with 4,000 IUs, but um, here we were 20,000 by just being out in the direct sun, sunlight for a while. Um, you know, the only thing was, of course, this had to be done on a long-term basis. And this, in this particular study, it was done by the Laval University in Quebec. Um, in this case, it, it took six months of supplements to achieve this, to reverse the diabetes. And of course, if you live in a northern clime, you ain't going to get six months of sunshine that's going to pink in anything. Um, so maybe supplementation is necessary. But otherwise, an incredible piece of news, Lynn, and something very inspiring and you know make you feel quite optimistic that this apparently intractable and intractable and chronic condition can actually be reversed
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, everybody, we see this in populations where they cover up a lot. Mm. Uh, we see massive vitamin D deficiencies. Mm. But everybody has to consider this. Even if they're not taking supplements, this is one supplement to take. And mm. if you do live in a northern climate, it's even more important in, during those winter months. Mm. Thanks, Tim. Okay, quick medical quiz. What links osteoarthritis and heart disease? Answer, inflammation, of course. Uh, people who have arthritis are also more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and, um, and could even die from it. But don't, don't want to put you, alarm you people with arthritis. It's a very small risk. Um, and, um, and it is, in fact, over 11 years, only a 60%. 16% increased risk. It's not enormous. But I think what's interesting about the study, which was done by Lund University, is the fact that the connection is there. Um, and they say that, you know, there's um, maybe, you know, this insight could help people understand what's going on better and actually do something about it. And, you know, if arthritis were an early warning sign of heart disease that follows, then maybe, you know, more could be done to develop, to, you know, counter it at an earlier stage, for example. But what do you reckon about this connection, Lynn? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, we've gone on this really weird mm. um, course in blaming heart disease on high on cholesterol when we need cholesterol, particularly increased amounts of cholesterol as we age, yeah. keep our brains sharp. But what they're finding, numerous researchers around the world are finding that arthritis is caused by a gut bug of mm. some sort, mm. that it is either bacterial infection or parasitical infections that create a inflammatory response in the body and even settle into the joints. So it may well be that they're finding that heart disease has the same cause. But the people who are successfully eradicating arthritis, and these are not, you know, woo-woo um, ideas, but the stuff of real science in real accredited scientific laboratories and academic institutions, the people who are eradicating arthritis are recognizing this gut bug connection mm. and looking for the bug, testing for and looking for the bug, and then eradicating it. Mm. And I would be fascinated to see if that same issue holds true with heart disease, because mm. you have to ask, well, what is creating inflammation? And if arthritis, if arthritis is caused by inflammation and not wear and tear, mm. as is always suggested, then we really have to look a little bit more deeply. It's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, it starts to join up the dots, which is quite fascinating. Osteoarthritis and heart disease could be connected by inflammation. Inflammation has the common cause of possibly of gut bacteria. Bad gut bacteria could be caused by the sugars. And so in a roundabout way, the idea of the heart disease and diet sort of makes sense in the sense that people go on about the Mediterranean diet being good for the heart, but actually it's not directly the reason. It's because the Mediterranean diet with fruits and veg and salads and all these good things and olive oil 
are actually helping to develop the good gut bacteria, which reduces the risk of heart disease. And I'd be interested to see if anyone's made that connection, saying, okay, does the Mediterranean diet also reduce the risk of osteoarthritis? Because you know, that could be a fascinating connection there. Absolutely. Mm. It really is all about the gut, and we're finding everything starts there. But Mm. that one connection with infection is a really important and vital one. Very interesting. Thanks, Lynn. Well, medicine's a dangerous caper, and I suppose we, we all know that. But... Um, and uh, yeah, and there have been attempts to put some numbers to that statement. And uh, I know the the New England Journal of Medicine did and reckoned it was the fourth major cause of death. Um, and um, there's been more research ongoing in in that general area. Uh, the latest says that around six percent of all patients are harmed, and some of those are killed from a preventable error, usually involving a prescription drug. Or procedure. And then a similar rate was harmed, so another 6%, were harmed as a result of drugs properly prescribed or procedures correctly carried out. So in all, 12% of all patients who encounter medicine come off worse and are either uh, seriously harmed by it, which could be uh, lifetime incapacity, or they're actually killed by it. Um, of the people who um, were harmed because of an error, 12% of those died uh, for, or suffered lifelong disabilities. Now, I mean, good for them. The um, NH, NIH, our Greater Manchester Patient Safety Translational Research Centre, for uh, doing the homework on this. But of course, the trouble is, we don't really know if this is correct because the, other, the major thing here is, of course, that most medical errors or whatever they might be are either not recorded for lots of litigious reasons or people never actually realize they had anything to do with the drug in the first place because you know that's a circular thing that if for example someone dies from a brain hemorrhage and the drug they were taking never was listed as causing a brain hemorrhage the drug is never fingered as the as the culprit and so it goes undetected, but nonetheless, it could well have been the drug did do that, but you know, it just wasn't wasn't recorded as such. So, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing, Lynn. I mean, that you know, we know medicine's a wonderful thing, and it does miracles on a daily basis, and it saves many lives, but it seems to do so also at an enormous cost. Well, I think there are two reasons for this, Brian. Um, number one. The idea of this high level of medical error has to do with medical machismo and the way that medicine works. First of all, students, to become a medical student, you have to work yourself into a frazzle to get make sure you get straight A's. Then when you're studying medicine, you're working harder pretty much than anybody else, any other student. You're working all the time. You're going to school all day long and you're working longer. Then you become a junior doctor or an intern, as they call it in the States, and you are the bottom of the pile. So you get the worst hours. Um, I 
as a, a, a journalist, I followed a junior doctor around for a whole weekend. She was on call working in a special baby unit with premature babies, having to do delicate operations on them, like threading things into their heart after being up without sleep for two days. Now, I could barely hold my pen by that time, let alone do something as complex and delicate as that. So these poor interns are then, you know, bullied, brutalized, and basically um, put in a situation that is not unlike a kind of form of torture or mind control. And then they become doctors. So that whole system expects Herculean amounts of strength and energy um, during times of real crisis and decision-making, you know, when there are emergencies. So no wonder there are so many mistakes. Then you have, with drugs, you know, the sheer amount of, of fraud and manipulation by the drug companies with medical studies. You know, multiple scientific journals like the British Medical Journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, both very prestigious, have announced that most, in fact, about three quarters of all medical science is manipulated by drug companies uh, who hire PR firms to, to write this stuff for mm. them and to massage away uncomfortable data. Mm. So if we have that kind of information supposedly proving drugs, no wonder so many of them are harmful and is not coming to light except when patients suffer and, and either get well, injured or die. Even then, it doesn't necessarily come to light. I mean, we've had that scene where some drugs have just, they've known about it for 10 years and hidden the data. So there's that as well mm. on top. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's just that it's, um, you know, it's time that uh, for a society to have this discussion. I've said this you know, numerous times on this podcast and and elsewhere, but, you know, it really is long overdue. It's the only industry where, has such high levels of fatalities and accidents and nothing seems to be done. But oh. No, and you if this were the airline industry, mm. there would be an outcry. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Lynn. Uh, quite a few people, not us, I should add, but quite a few people like to have a glass of red wine after a hectic day in the office or with the children or whatever it might be. And I think they just associate it with being in a relaxed state. It helps them unwind. But actually, there's some good science behind this. And there's a reason why they're getting this this rather relaxed feeling. It's all to do with good old resveratrol, one of the key compounds in red wine. What it does, it blocks the strength for stress signals in the brain. And they reckon it could also help with other problems like depression and anxiety. Resveratrol is in the skin and seeds of the grapes, which is all used for making wine, as well as in berries. So if you didn't fancy a glass of wine after a hard day, maybe a cup of berries doesn't sound quite so appealing, but apparently would have the same effect. Um, so, and, and there's, you know, the researchers who did that from the University of Buffalo said that um, as um, antidepressant drugs work at best for one third of people and for probably only for a few weeks of that, um, you know, they need to look elsewhere to help ease the growing problem of depression and anxiety. And maybe a glass of wine, you know, judiciously sipped, 
not overdone, may be a, a good thing. So what do you think, Lynn? Well, you know, this just adds to all of the great benefits of red wine. Mm. Um, we have been hearing about this for years, about red wine and the heart, um, red wine, and so many different things. And it's so fascinating that now it is red wine and mood mm. um, that is really important. But it also ties in with the just general ideas about the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet, which also, mm. you know, includes wine mm. and the so-called French paradox when they were trying to look at mm. um, what causes heart disease, mm. finding that, you know, the French broke every rule they thought was mm. causing heart disease. Mm. Um, but And they attributed it finally to wine. Mm. So Although the paradox was wrong because they... They were fingering the wrong thing as a cause of Absolutely. heart disease, which they said was fats. Of course, it never was anyway. But, Absolutely. So then, you know, if the theory is wrong, uh, then you realise that the paradox goes away. The paradox goes away, <laughs> but they also found a real, yeah. you know, yeah. a real health. But it still had a yeah, absolutely still had a good health benefit as well. But that is really interesting, mm, and yeah. it, it it makes a lot of sense yeah. from okay. a biological point of view. Okay. Um, resveratrol is resveratrol, yeah. is a kind of wonder substance. Yeah, well, we need great. to study more. Well, I think we've had a real cornucopia today of wonder supplements and compounds, and goodness knows what else, from vitamin D to resveratrol and everything else in between. So, I think a smorgasbord of health information today, Lynn, and thanks for aiding and abetting. A little journey. Absolutely. So, oh. And I'll, I'll drink to that. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm Brian Hubbard. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again in a lug hole near you very soon. Thanks. I'm Lynn McTaggart. See you next time. <laughs>